Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Julia Zorja and I'm joined today by my colleagues Dalibor Rohaj and Giselle Donnelly. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that tend to emerge along a line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. If you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today, we're joined by um, General Philip Breedlove. Um, he has served as a commander of U.S. European Command, NATO Supreme um, Allied Commander Europe. He's recently also been to Kyiv, uh, and we'll talk to him about uh, what he learned from the Ukrainians and how he sees our chances to hold our ground over on the Eastern Front. But before we get into that, let me ask you, Giselle, um, what uh, are um, the Russians capable of and um, how do you, what are you watching in the news and what are you writing on that as well? Well, just to begin with the news ripped from today's headlines, um, and one of the things I would most watch uh, is uh, Russian artillery action. Um, you know, it's very, very difficult to get a clear picture of what is actually happening on a day-to-day -day basis. It's, it's always the case that those in the metropolis are a couple of days, uh, uh, if not weeks, behind what's happening uh, at the front lines. But uh, there were reports this morning that, uh, but significantly, I think, uh, only um, in the Donbass region, there were increased uh, artillery barrages um, uh, into Ukrainian-held uh, territory. This comes a couple after a couple of days of uh, Putin pretending to withdraw. Uh, so let's just say that the uh, situation remains uh, unclear. But I'm sure just for our listeners, I would say that one of the prime indicators of any Russian military action would be a, a, a really powerful artillery barrage that preceded um, even a further air campaign, or and certainly um, a ground invasion. Just one other little tidbit. Uh, it's also very difficult to parse the Russian order of battle. It does sort of seem that, that their heaviest forces, again, the ones that are ground-winning forces, seem to be kind of dispersed uh, across the, uh, the, the three parts of the Ukrainian front, so to speak. So it doesn't appear that they've really concentrated, um, you know, an armored spearhead uh, that that would be an indicator of a, you know, a serious ground gaining uh, campaign or uh, a major thrust toward Kyiv. But I would defer to, to General Breedlove because, first of all, he's more sagacious than I, and secondly, he's more current than I, uh, to, to sort of assess the tidbits of information that we have at the moment. So if you'd like, I, I'd like to add a couple of comments. I think Giselle has a great point. I would add that if we remember what happened in uh, 14, when, uh, when Crimea was seized and occupied, The first thing that happened was uh, electronic warfare to cut uh, um, 
Crimea off from Kyiv. So it was a combination of electronic warfare, jamming, and physically cutting cables and things to disrupt, disrupt communication. So I would add to what Giselle uh, said that I would look for this, uh, this intense sort of creation of confusion by all manner of electronic warfare and physical capability to disrupt communications inside uh, Ukraine. And then, of course, the Russians always use artillery. May I add uh, that uh, Giselle brought up a very good point about why just Donbass? I've long said that I expect this, because remember that the best part of the Ukrainian military is still on the line of contact. And I believe that Mr. Putin will do something in the Donbass to fix that force so that it can't respond either to the north to protect Kiev or to the south to protect against this coastal run. So it, uh, Giselle, it doesn't surprise me that we're just seeing artillery there I expect that as a part of the Russian approach. Boy, that makes that makes uh, perfect sense to me. Um, uh, absolutely, um, and also I, I I would say that your point about uh, cyber and electronic warfare uh, uh, are extraordinarily well taken. If I could ask a quick follow up question, and just you know, as I was writing about this a couple of weeks ago and reviewing the uh, pattern of Russian military behavior since Putin has come to office and also remembering that it was Chechnya that really framed his rise to power and the, the, the sort of, uh, you know, catastrophe that that was for, for the Russians, a reminder of, uh, how regular warfare could lead to atrocious casualties and so on and so forth. You know, it seemed to me that they've been extremely cautious, two things. First of all, the pattern of their defense investment began and continues to be in the, the nuclear realm and at the high end, you know, their first order of business was to reestablish their sort of uh, um, credibility as a, a nuclear power. And although they've made, you know, and there have been a lot of articles and across the press about how lethal and modern the Russian army is, I've, I've got to think that that's confined to a relatively small slice uh, of the overall uh, Russian force. And that Putin has been very cautious in exposing that uh, high-end element. I mean, my goodness, they only had 30 aircraft in uh, Syria, for example. And likewise, and as you sort of suggested, he's tried to make the maximum use of sort of political warfare, um, you know, things that, like I said, just don't expose the high end conventional capabilities they have to the prospect of heavy attrition or even defeat. I, I think it's very uh, prescient what you're saying. And in fact, um, uh, what you're talking about, especially about the nuclear forces, we've seen this. What we absolutely know is Mr. Putin understands that he cannot stand against a generated uh, NATO. Um, and, and I think that building up his nuclear forces was that first big fence to put out there to say, if you generate and you start having advances on me, remember the words he uses all the time, 
that uh, nuclear weapons are a logical extension of the conventional battlefield. In other words, if I start losing, I'm going to use nukes. It's just a big artillery piece. <laughs> yeah, and and uh, and so to your second point, uh, yes, I couldn't agree more. He has done some pretty good uh, uh, upgrading of the capabilities of some of his units, but uh, you're exactly right. He knows he's not ready, again, to meet a generated NATO on the battlefield. Ergo, the nukes, and ergo, sort of the rapid advance, seize land, and then start suing for peace by threatening nukes and everything else uh, out there. And and that's the, that's the only strategy or tactics that really would work uh, for him against uh, Russia. And, and I'll just waste one more minute. Um, if you read all the old dead guys like Clausewitz, Sun Tzu, and all of those, um, uh, don't forget to read Jomani, Jomani, who writes about interior lines. Russia enjoys magnificent interior lines, and that allows them to rapidly assemble forces uh, um, uh, like they have on the border of Ukraine. And so they can concentrate a force quickly against NATO. Whereas NATO enjoys, quote unquote, the absolute worst of exterior lines, especially to get to Europe from America and Canada. And so um, uh, I think Mr. Putin and uh, uh, General Gerasimov absolutely understand Germany and they work it like a well-tuned fiddle. <laughs> All right. So that, that um, paints a pretty... A pretty dim picture when we combine conventional positioning right now with um, what people tend to forget. Russia's policy changed uh, a few, a couple of decades ago on first use, and the fact that Putin loves to remind us every other day about his nuclear arsenal, right? Um, but I want to ask you something else, General. When you came back from Kiev, you made some points um, that. Um, to me, raised a bit the alarm bells, um, and I think they should raise the alarm bells for more people, especially here in Washington, D.C. The reason why uh, my alarm bells were rang is because when military, especially generals of four stars, um, tell me that the main threat um, that Ukraine is, face is facing is not just the military, but economic strangling that uh, Ukraine is saying um, it cannot resist much longer the pressure combined with um, cyber attacks, massive ones every single day. Now um, going into the region, we've seen them in Poland yesterday as well, combined with psychological warfare with hundreds of bomb threats. Um, If, if military say that to me, that raises extra alarm bells because um, that sounds like Ukraine is not just fighting conventional warfare um, with a superpower for eight years, but that they're actually, um, they're actually um, in a major non-military warfare with Russia and don't stand many chances. Can you talk us through... Um, your uh, impressions and assessments from your latest visit of many to Kiev and um, what, how you think we should understand and cover better what is happening in Ukraine? 
Could I just add one little bit to this, um, which has to do with um, the um, unintended consequences, if you will, from uh, you know the West starting to confront Russia in the information space, you know the preemptive publication of putative invasion dates and so on and so forth. Uh, my sense is that Ukrainians themselves are very ambivalent to be at the front line of this information warfare because it affects you know their position in the financial markets. It affects you know all kinds of daily daily things in in in, in their political economic life. Um, so, so it would be really helpful to sort of get your read also on the Western response to to this. Okay, excellent. So first, let me just say to Yulia's point that I came away with two impressions that were not what I expected, truly. Uh, so we had a team of uh, three or four, uh, actually four ambassadors, three ex-ambassadors to Ukraine, one ex-ambassador to uh, Russia, and then two generals, myself and Ben Hodges. And we met with everyone from uh, President Zelensky down all the way to the three main parties in the Rada, the leadership of those parties. So we were able to really get a slice of what's going on. Now, remember, this was just a while ago, and we've had some more military uh, uprising and sort of increased pressure since then. But when we talked to president, some of his words were very enlightening. And that is that, yes, we have a military threat out there. But right now, today, the biggest threat to my country is a collapsing economy and the ability to maintain the value of my currency, applying his international funds is, uh, uh, for that purpose to prop up the, the uh, currency. And, and literally, you know, he was seeing his country take a beating every day. Um, and so uh, it was clear to us that he understood, and I'm sure we're doing some pretty excellent intelligence sharing. He understood the military threat, but what he saw every day was the economy and the currency under attack. And, and that, I believe, is one of Russia's main ambitions in what they're doing. Secondarily, he was uh, and others were angry at the way the press in the West was handling what's going on in his country, because the press, all it wants to focus on is the forces and the military options and, oh, my God, invasion. And they use these grand words like full scale invasion and so forth. Um, <clears throat> and he said, what you're not paying attention to is the sabotage and the below-the-line warfare going on in my country every day. Schools and things being attacked when, luckily or thankfully, when kids are not in them. Threats to school buses, attacks in cyber, attacks against the radio stations, TV stations, all manner of what NATO calls hybrid war, some call gray zone war, I call war below the lines. That is going on every day in this country now, and it's intensifying. And he says the West is paying no attention to the fact that the war is already ongoing. And then he reminds, we've been at war since 2014. And now it's just intensifying inside our country. And a more big kinetic threat is also at our borders. Um, to your point about the West's reaction, um, uh, one of the things that the president said is uh, my three big jobs, 
the currency, the economy. The other is to hold down the panic, to try to hold my country together. And what I don't appreciate is outside voices increasing the panic in my country. And so that's to your point. I'll just leave it there. So I had actually a twofold question. The first part of it is a direct follow-up to, to what you just said um, about the below threshold warfare and, 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 and Russian aggression and about the sort of Western options that are available to us to deter such behavior. Because it looks like unlike you know the Article 5 guarantee, which is ironclad and, and, and credible, we are not very good at responding to to these sort of gray zone below threshold activities and 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 you have regimes like Russia and China constantly pushing the envelope on on those and my second question is um about the the sort of military aid and assistance that the Ukrainians are receiving whether you consider that being adequate or not what are the sort of matches and mismatches that that that, that occur because reading just publicly available information is not terribly enlightening, right? You sort of read on NPR that Ukraine received 90 tons of military equipment on, you know, in, in mid-January. Is that is that a lot? Is that not enough? You know, you, you sort of see these baseline numbers, 650 million in 2021, 200 additional millions approved by, by, by the administration in, in December. Uh, are, the, are Ukrainians getting what they need? Uh, and also, what are the constraints in like getting this equipment? This is maybe a sort of very naive civilian question, but but my understanding of modern military is that it's not like you know you hand people a gun and they can immediately use it. That it takes months, if not years, to to get this new equipment. Sort of. Oh, so the short know. answer is no. They're not getting what they need. And uh, sort of a flip aside, no one measures aid in tons. Uh, I, think, <laughs> I think this is an attempt to get a good uh, byline or a good headline in the news or on the paper. I, I've already brought this up at least once with our administration. Why are we talking about tons? I believe it's because we don't really have good news on what is actually being delivered. And so we sort of measure it in units that make us feel good or hopefully make people feel good. <laughs> Uh, the fact of the matter is they they have received some things, and those are helpful things. Uh, and and uh, the anti-tank missiles, uh, et cetera, et cetera, these are uh, have actually arrived, and they are there and and we hope are being pushed forward into the Ford area as we speak. We don't have clear vision of what's happening with them, but we hope that's happening. But what has not happened is U.S. providing stingers. There's a lot of talk about we are providing stingers. The U.S. hasn't provided any stingers. Uh, some of our allies have provided some old stingers, some old generation stingers. But there's a technology hangup inside of our government that ha has kept us from providing the best and the latest stingers. Same thing. They have asked for coastal defense cruise missiles. They haven't received none, uh, but there's another technology hangup inside of our government that precludes us from providing uh, coastal defense cruise missiles. Um, and so um, I think that there's not misrepresentation going on, but there's a little bit of uh, uh, hopeful, uh, promising kind of things being said, but the deliveries are less than promised. And so we need to be working on that. And some of us are trying that all the time with 
with the powers that be inside the United States. And your last point is perfect. Uh, you know, I, I, I have heard that we want to give them this, that, and the other. Let's say like a, a, a magnificent airplane. How long does it take to, to train a fighter pilot with 10 years worth of experience? It takes 10 years to train a fighter pilot. At least years. 10 years. I don't know. <laughs> so you don't. You ask these, these trick yeah, questions. Exactly. And so you don't sometimes hand these very extravagant things over and expect them to have an immediate um, effect. We are grading our paper now saying we should have been doing this for years. We should have been helping our Ukrainian brothers and sisters in these more important ways for years. But we have been training. And uh, I don't know if you've ever been to the, the uh, training bases, but but there, what's going on there is incredibly good. But it's small unit tactics, ground tactics, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, ha- what do they need now? They need air defense. That takes command and control. That takes high-end equipment. That takes many years to get ready. You don't build an air defense system, you know, overnight. Uh, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. I don't want to belabor our point. We need to get to more points, but. Well, actually, if I could just twist it, the, the knife one more time, it, it, it seems to me, I mean, we see this also in the Pacific where our um, uh, allies there are wrestling with the proliferation of missiles um, uh, and strike weaponry. Um, uh and in many ways, our own military has been slow to respond to these decade-long trends, um, uh, you know, where countries would rather, you know, uh, uh, achieve long range uh, in their strike systems, buy a ton of cheap uh, rockets and missiles. And the guys who invented this were the Russians, after all. Um, how comfortable are you or sanguine are you about even if um you know the 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 restrictions were lifted and the floodgates opened that we would be in a position to supply again just not the ukrainians but our allies more generally speaking with the kinds of capabilities that they really need which we also really need Yeah, it's a great question, and I sort of alluded to it in my last uh, answer. Um, We we are having to change the way we think about fighting because of these long-range capabilities that specifically the Chinese have developed, and to a certain degree the Russians have developed. I go back to the, in Syria, remember the missile shots out of the Caspian Sea. Sort of like our first long-range cruise missile shots. They didn't work really well, and they were tactically irrelevant. But what did they really do? I don't think they had anything to do with Syria myself. I think those were distinct messages to the capital of Europe saying, we can range your capital from our Caspian Sea. You know, and this is a big message. And so um, we have to now reckon with that. And uh, uh, it is harder to defend and much, let me say it two more times, much, much more expensive to defend than to be an offender in this, uh, in this type of weaponry. And so uh, I believe that we 
are now beginning to, but we need to be able to hold our opponents at the same risk and hold them at the same risk in quantity. Having five or six really nice weapons doesn't help. You know, we have to have capacity and capability when it comes to this. And you're right, Giselle, this is something that, that we're going to need to share with um, with our uh, friends and allies. Across allies, yeah. And I, uh, and I think this is a priority, okay? We tend, this is a priority and a policy decision, I meant to say. We tend to say uh, we're going to spend a lot of money on this defense first because we're sort of a not an offensive thinking set of people. But if I was balancing this in the grand scheme of things, I would give the same problem to my opponents at a rate maybe faster than I invested in the defense because I want him spending money on his defense. I want him thinking about I'm at risk immediately. And what does Mr. Putin often write about? Our distinct capability to hit precisely with conventional weapons. He's always talking about decapitation attacks and how they'll be treated just like a nuclear attack and stuff because he's afraid of that. We need to make our opponents respect us more and more and more in the long-range prompt strike category so that they have to spend like we're spending on defense. That is not, by the way, anybody else's opinion but mine. There might be somebody else's well, opinion here, but I wouldn't want to say. From your mouth and your words, General, to the ears of the administration. It seems to me that the conclusion of this uh, conversation, thank you so much for joining General Breedlove, is that we need from Ukraine to the Pacific a Russia strategy, and that that Russia strategy needs to have a military component of deterrence, but building in costs for, for opponents as well, right? Um, it's time to wrap up. So from uh, me, Julia Zorja, my friends, thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges arising along the line from the Baltic to the Black Sea. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, aei.org, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag EasternFrontPod in one word. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you, and until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.